The vision of Isaiah, we've talked about that. Isaiah, a good man, prophet of God. He is simply writing here what God has told him to say. This is God himself is speaking. He says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Now stop there for a second. That's his audience. He calls everybody, all, not just men, not just Judah and Jerusalem who he's talking about. He wants all of creation to hear. Now that phrase, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, there are two reasons he says that. Now you guys did your homework and you read the book of Deuteronomy, I'm sure, okay? Now if you did that, you know that this is the fourth time that this has been said. Three times it was in Deuteronomy. We'll talk more about that later. The second reason, though, is all of creation is involved in this book, okay? Why is all of creation called as witnesses? Because God cares about them besides us, okay? Creation, for instance, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, Satan was given consideration when he came before Job. Uh, then there's other things. When Jesus was buried, uh, what did he do for three days when he was in the grave? He went and preached to the fallen angels, okay? God gives other parts of creation consideration in what he plans on doing. There's another thing. What he is doing here in this book is he's answering some questions about himself. Now, when he goes and he carries out his plan to bring back Israel and to fix what's broken, it's going to affect all of creation. And we're going to find it all through this book. Romans chapter 8. Let me read to you a few verses. Verses 19 through 22. Listen to what it says. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility. You know what that means? It means that creation, we have never seen what creation is supposed to be. But the day is coming when it will be released. Their futility will come into fruition. And they will become what they're supposed to be. What happened is when God created us, he put us in the garden... And we were given instructions to what? We were supposed to master and manage his creation in the garden. That was our domain. When we fell, not only did he curse us, but he cursed our domain. You want to know what the kingdom is? You're looking at the kingdom right there. God is not through with the garden. We're going back, and we're going to be what we were supposed to be in the garden. In fact, it's going to be even better. Okay? So, it says... For creation was subjected to utility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption unto the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now let me give you a few examples in this book. I'm not going to give a lot, but just give you a, a taste of what's going on here. If we were just to thumb through the book of Isaiah and see what, he, what we're talking about here, let me read to you a little bit and you'll see what we're talking about. <clears throat> and the wolf, chapter 11, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Their nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. 
You know, even in the kingdom, I can't see myself playing with a snake. But, okay, the day is coming when things are going to be changed. Creation itself, the curse is going to be reversed. Isaiah chapter 13, not just creation on earth, but even the stars of heaven. If you look at verses 10 through 13, it says, For the stars in the heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil. Chapter 14, very interesting book, that chapter. It says, The whole earth is at rest and in quiet. Even the cypress trees will rejoice. Now, I used to read this, and it's also in the Psalms. I always wondered, how does a tree, and it's not just a tree, it's how, it'll talk about the oceans and the wilderness, all through this book and through the Psalms, it talks about they will celebrate God. I used to wonder if that was just figurative speech. I don't think that anymore. And what changed my mind is hunting. I would get up in the morning when I was bow hunting, and I would sit in a tree before it became light, and... I cannot tell you, but you, you listen to the wind as it goes through the trees. It has its own sound. It's a sound that you can only hear if you're up in the trees and you listen to them. They make their own sound. Now, I don't know if that's what he's talking about, but it says that even creation itself will praise God. Chapter 14 is, is fascinating. It says, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. Cypress trees will rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon. And then... It talks about Sheol itself, talking about hell. And then it talks about, in verse 19, the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises up the kings of the nation. They're going to raise up in response to this king who's going to hell. Okay? And then it talks about, we're going to go back in time before time and look at Lucifer. Then, I'll just give you one more. Chapter 4, 24. When he judges, he is not going to just judge men. He's going to judge the whole earth. It says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates its surface, scatters its inhabitants. I'm sorry, I said, let me give you two more. It says, and then chapter 34, Not even the heavens will escape the wrath of God. The heavens themselves will be involved in God's judgment. And then chapter 35, another one of my favorites, it says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad. Waters will break forth in the wilderness, and it talks about how creation and how everything on earth is going to change. Now, if you guys have this idea that heaven is us sitting on a cloud with a halo and a harp just strumming around all day, guys, go ahead and do that if you want to. I'm going to go do something else. Listen, heaven is going to be fun, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the garden, that's my kind of world. I was made for that. I'm looking forward to it. You know, when you, this image of you guys, I've heard about you know, what heaven is. Uh, that's really boring. That sounds more like hell in heaven, okay? If you want to just lay around and do nothing but moan and groan, that's what hell's for, okay? I'm going to where the party and where the fun is, okay? I'm going back to the garden. I'm going to swim with the dolphins. Sometimes I'll let my imagination get away with me, but I think you can sometimes. I think I'm going to fly with the dragons. I'm going to wrestle a lion. I can't wait to snuggle his mane. Okay? Hey, I'm going to have fun. We have yet to see what this earth was supposed to be. I'm going to be there. Now, I've got to ask you a question. 
Are you going to be there? Wait a minute. Are you going to be there? How do you know? Isaiah chapter 1. These people that he's describing right here, they thought they were going to be there. They thought they were the elected, special people of God. They thought heaven was a lock. They thought they were going to be there. Look what he, how God describes them. He says, listen, O heavens and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks, sons I have reared. That means nourished. And then he says, brought them up. That word means to lift up or exalt. God treated them like his own children. He not only cared for them, trained them, he elevated them, and he gave them a privileged life. Hosea is dealing with the same thing in, north, in the north that Isaiah is dealing with in the south. And look how Hosea says it. He goes back and says the same thing that Isaiah just says. And listen to his words in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a youth, listen to what he says. I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and I fed them. God the Father says that my sons, listen, I want you to look at verse 3. You notice he says, but an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. But what's the next word? Israel. Now he's talking to Judah and he's talking to Jerusalem. But here he uses the word Israel. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, people, go back to when you were not a divided nation. When there was Israel in the north and there was Judah and Benjamin to the south. Go back to the beginning and remember when you were young. Remember that I'm the one that raised you? Remember, I'm the one that fed you. I'm the one that taught you to walk. I'm the one. I was your dad. And listen, I loved you. I was a good father to you. Have you forgotten who raised you, who took care of you? That's what he's saying. But listen, he says, Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The point here, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. Man is supposed to be smarter than an, than an animal. Not here. All of creation is watching as man, who is supposed to be the king and the manager of creation, lowers himself to be less intelligent than an animal. But it's even worse. Because Israel wasn't just a man, they were the enlightened nation. God gave them an enlightenment and an understanding that nobody else in the world, <clears throat> he taught them. But even with that, they are not as smart as the ox or the donkey. Now it says, Israel does not know. What is he talking about when he says, Israel does not know? They don't know what? Well, the clue to answering that is, look, when it says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. What is it that the ox and the donkey know? 
They know who took care of them. If they want something to eat, if they want to be cared for, where do they go? They know where they go. They know who takes care of them. Israel does not know their provider, their maker, and the one who loves and cares for them. The animals know it. These enlightened people, they don't know it. Israel's ignorance of the source of her life and sustenance was due to the fact that the individuals who composed the nation had had their understanding darkened and consequently were alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, listen to this, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluding from the life of God. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. Israel was lost, but you couldn't tell them that. They were very religious. They were the most religious people and the most worshipful people on the planet. But their worship was meaningless, their heart wasn't in it, and their hearts were hard. Now, what does it mean to know somebody? Jesus is, what he's saying here is that they don't know him. What does it mean by the word know? Genesis 4.1, when it says that Eve and Adam had relations, or that he knew her, what does that mean? They had a baby. When Cain knew uh, his wife, what happened? She bore a son. M Mary was not known by Joseph. What does it mean? It means they did not have a marriage relationship. It's the same word here. So what they're saying is that God does not have a special, intimate, close relationship with the nation of Israel, with his people. Now, it says, Galatians 4, 8, 9. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> However, at the time when you did not know God, you were slaves in those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, what he is saying there is that lost people do not know God. On the other hand, 1 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows them that are his. That means that Jesus has a unique relationship with what? With us, if we're Christians. Now, when he says he knows you, that doesn't mean he doesn't know who you are. He knows the very heads of hairs on your head. So that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that he has a close, special relationship with you if you are one of his, okay? So that's what it means here when he says, no, I know who you are, but we do not have a close relationship. These people of Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah, I don't know you that way. They don't know me. I don't know them. Amos 3.2 says the same thing about Israel. It says, Israel only have I chosen. Or sometimes your translation says, Israel only have I known. Israel had a special relationship with God that no other nation had. He had an intimate, close relationship. Now, we as Christians, if you're the real thing, if you are genuinely saved, 
if you're going to be one of those that sees the kingdom, you have a close, intimate relationship with God. The Lord is telling his people here that they do not have that type of relationship. Again, Hosea is dealing with the same thing in the north. Look what he says in chapter 8. Hosea will say the same thing to the nation of Israel to the north, and this is how he says it. Look at the picture he paints. He says in verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips like an, and if you're there with me, it says eagle. You know what that word eagle is? It's vulture. Like a vulture, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Why? For they have transgressed my covenant. They rebelled against my law. Now stop a second. What do vultures do? Luke and I were out on a hike with Marilyn the other day, and we saw a bunch of turkey vultures circling. What does that mean? Something's dead. Okay? Now, what does the Bible in Ephesians 2 say? It says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The vultures are flying over the house of Israel because the house of Israel is full of dead men. Not only are they dead in their trespasses and sin, but Assyria is going to come down and kill them all. And God says the vultures are circling right now. Now, but listen to this. Look at the next thing that he says. He says, they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel, what does it say? We know you. Their defense He's just describing there's a bunch of dead men, and he's going to come, and he's going to kill them all and capture them. But what do they cry in defense? God, why have you got the vultures circling? Because we know you. They think they have a special, close relationship with God. They don't. They're fooled. Come back to Isaiah chapter 1. You're going to see the exact same thing. This time, Isaiah says it in a different way. After, in chapter, in verse 2 and 3, I'm sorry, it says, Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Go down to verse 11. <clears throat> he says to Judah, you guys are not as smart as the, monkey, uh, the donkeys and the ox. Then he's going to tell Jerusalem, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what happens is, is that the Jews that are in Judah and the Jews that are in Jerusalem, they're going to react to that. Okay, God, you just called me a name. You just accused me of something. You say I'm dumber than a donkey, and now you think that, that me, a special people, are like Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're going to get a reaction from the Jews, and God knows that. You know what their reaction is? Look at all that I'm doing for you. I'm going to the temple. I'm offering sacrifices. I'm offering incense. I'm giving an offering. Every time the church door is open, I'm walking in, I'm singing praises. And look, I'm praying all the time, over and over again. I am praying. And what does God say? I hate it. You're wearing me out. It's worthless. Doesn't mean a thing to me. You think that's going to get you saved. It's not. You're going to die in your trespasses and sins, and the vultures are going to come down. They were fooled. They believed a lie. Now, you think God's being mean when he does this? 
He's not being mean. He's being kind. Well, it's not nice to call people names and all that. Listen, he's trying to get their attention to the point where they have got to realize you believe a lie. And if you keep believing that lie, you're going to die and go to hell. I'm trying to wake you up. I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to lay some truth onto you so you realize you are being fooled. Now listen. Same thing to us. Same message to us. These people were super religious. Same thing today. You can be super religious. You can come to church here. You can sing and listen. You can do awesome things for God in his name. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Turn, this sounds just like Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 21 and 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do not we, we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never, what's the word? Knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Does it sound familiar? It's the same thing. Jesus is dealing with the Jews again, and it's the exact same problem. I never knew you. You know, of everything that I read in the Bible, this verse scares me the most of anything that I read. The idea that I could think that I'm a Christian, stand before God, and you notice it says in that day, do you know what that day is? It's the white throne judgment day. You're going to stand before God, and you're going to say, depart from me, He's going to throw you into the lake of fire, and all that impressive resume is going to mean nothing. You notice it says they confess Jesus as Lord. Confession is great. Doesn't it say, confess with your mouth and thou shalt be saved? They're confessing, okay? Three times they say, in your name. They're representing God in what they do. They're prophesying. It means to speak forth. They're telling everybody. They're even doing things I've never done. They're doing miracles. They're casting out demons. They're fighting for God against the enemy. That is an impressive resume. In fact, it's, it sounds like these guys are missionaries or pastors or teachers. And yet, they stand before God doing all of that, thinking they're saved, and God says, I don't know you. The Greek literally says, not for a single moment, have I acknowledged you as my own? I have never known you. And then it says they do not good works. It says, Jesus says, you that do always work lawlessness, you that do always work evil. This person claims to know Christ, and yet he sins continually. They don't see it that way. God's laying out some truth and saying, you need to see it. The truth is, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And you know what the word that scares me the most? It says many. 
I had a guy tell me one time, he says, you know what that means? I says, what? He says, most. Most? I looked it up last night. I can see where he gets that. That is the word that scares me. Now, what in the world is he talking about many? Go back to verse 13 and 14, and look, this is the many. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. There's what? Many who go on the road to destruction. In contrast to that, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The reason that it is hard to find it is because it requires self-denial, submission to Jesus Christ as your authority, and a commitment to obey him at all costs. Sinners will find this hard because we love ourselves, we love our sin, and it means breaking off from the crowd by yourself and presenting yourself to God. That is hard to do. Now listen, why is it that so many are being fooled is because you believe in an easy gospel. You thought it was easy to get saved. Jesus never, never presented an easy gospel. Guys, salvation does not come easy. It's time to get real, guys. What makes you think you're saved? You know, of all the things we're going to go through in Isaiah, it's a waste of time if we don't get past this right here. You know, of all the things that will ever go through your mind, there is nothing more important than this one right here. You can make mistakes. Listen, I've made some doozy of some mistakes. I've been stupid into some of the things. But listen, there is one thing you have got to get right. You have got to get this one right. There is nothing more important than getting this right. Are you really, truly born again? It's hard to get saved. It's not easy. It's not just going up front, praying a prayer and going away. I made it. That's not how it works. How does it work? He explains. Chapter 7. Look at verse 24 and look at the next four verses. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against their house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Listen, what are real Christians? Look at the difference between a lost person and a saved person. The saved person, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Acts on them. Contrast that to the lost person, and it says in verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. A couple of things, very important. What does it take to get saved? It takes the word of God. If you want to lead somebody to the Lord, give them the gospel according to the word of God. It takes the word of God. 
not your opinion. It takes the word of God. Their salvation depends on how they react to what, what happens when they hear God's word. They need to hear the gospel according to this. That's what it takes for salvation. Now listen. It tells you how important that the word of God is. The difference between a genuine believer and a lost person is how did they respond to God's word? Ask yourself that question. What makes the difference? The difference between the two is the foundation. The foundation on sand falls. The foundation built, that's a, that is a foundation built on religion, self-righteousness. It's what's described in chapter 7 when he stands before the white throne judgment. What, did they abate? what was their foundation? I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this gets you hell. It's what you believe that God did for you. Salvation is grace by faith through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. It's what Jesus Christ did for you and you trusted in him as it been revealed to you when you looked at the word of God. Okay? Now, how are you going to react? Are you going to go back to trusting what you did or are you going to trust what God did for you? It's by God's grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves you at his given to you through God's word. It is the word of Jesus. It is the word of God. Listen, John 8.31 says, If you continue in my word, then you are my real disciple. A true disciple is dedicated to studying and believing and applying the word of God. Does that sound like you? That is a mark of a true Christian. Now, what happens when you study God's word? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. As you look at the word of God, your faith is built up. And here comes the love. And it grows. Okay, now, ask yourself a question. How do I know? How do I know if I have real saving faith? faith. Look at what the answer here in what we just read. Up to the point of the storm, they looked the same. You didn't know. What did it take for that person to know if they had the right foundation to know if they really were saved or not? What did it take? It took a storm. It took a trial. It took a really hard time. It takes a storm for it, you to know whether you have real saving faith. Listen, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation Revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, trials show you what kind of faith you have. You're going through a really hard time. It's miserable. It's hard. When that happens, do not misinterpret who God is. What happens is God comes along, God, I wish you wouldn't do that. Would you please get me out of this? 
And you go, and a lot of times the temptation is, God's mean. Why is he doing this? God, how can you love me if you're making me hurt like this? And you are misinterpreting God when that happens. Listen, you will not know. It's easy right now. You can sit here and you're all shaking your head. Yes, I'm a Christian. You don't know. You know, my dad taught me something about Vietnam. He says, nobody knows what he is until the bullets start flying. Christian, you don't know what you are until the bullets start flying. You really don't know who you are until the trial comes. God is trying to tell you something when the hard times come. Listen, I've been through some hard times. Marilyn and I have talked about this. I don't ever want to go through that again. That was hard. I was miserable. But now that I'm on this side of having gone through what I went through, thank you, Lord. Because you know what happened to me? And Marilyn will tell you the same story. I became very aware of things that I did not know before. There was a number of things that God taught me I never would have known. And one of the biggest things that I knew is I realized who I really was. I saw myself as I thought I wanted to be, not as I really was. And when everything was gone and it was just me, I looked in the mirror and I did not like what I saw. I saw the truth. But when it was all over, I realized I belonged to him. Sometimes it wasn't me hanging on to him. Sometimes it was him hanging on to me. But I knew, I knew, and now that I've gone through it, I know I have a faith. Now listen, faith in a trial will grow if you're a Christian. If you are not a Christian, that faith will disappear. That's a good thing. If you lose your faith when you're going through that really hard time, that's a good thing because now you realize you need to get rid of that faith and you need a new one. The faith that you need is the faith that will grow when you go through the hard time. It will persevere. Let me tell you one story, and then I'll close with this. Marilyn and I were uh, at Silver Dollar City, and if you go to Silver Dollar City, they give a free concert. We happened to be there one night when the Isaacs, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. It's not a group I'd ever listened to, but they are a Jewish family. Their uh, parents survived the Holocaust. They're a Christian Jewish singing group. I think, it's blue, I think they're a bluegrass group. And I had never really listened to the music, but their testimony made a big impression on Marilyn and I that night. When they became Christians, their parents disowned them. And then they went through a trial, and the, one of the girls was singing, one of the older ladies, the mother of the group. She described a trial that she went through. And when she got done describing and giving her testimony, it was one of those deals where I felt for her in a very bad way. It was hard what she went through. And it was one of those testimonies when you get through and she says, and I thought the temptation and the expectation was, I'm mad at God. God, what are you doing to me? I wish you'd just leave me alone. Why are you doing this, God? That is not her reaction. You know what she did? When she got through going through everything that she had been through, this is what she wrote. 
she wrote a song called I love you she didn't say I love you less she says now that I've gone through it I love you more it's not your fault I don't blame you even though you didn't make the mountain move you must have known that in time I'd get so much closer to you as I climbed because you gave me strength when I was weak because you never lost your faith in me I love you more than I did before because when I needed you you were there to pull me through I love you still though I don't understand your will because you've been so faithful to me Lord I love you more <laughs>